0: Hi, this is William Ramsey. The following show was an interview I did back in 2010 with Mike Bennett of Future Quake and you can see all of his old shows going back from 2005 to 2012 at futurequake.com but the this interview was one that I did um, on August 10th August 23rd excuse me of 2010 and the title of this show is The Legacy of Aleister Crowley and His Shadow on the Events of 9-11. So it was after I published my first book, Prophet of Evil, Alistair Crowley, 9-11, and the New World Order in 2010. So I had just published this book. I was actually printing it out uh, on my printer at home. I had not actually turned it into a book format yet. But uh, he was kind enough to have me on his show back in 2010 and also generously allowed me to republish this interview again from 2010. Thank you very much.
1: I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future.
2: And I'm Tom. No fan of uh, a lot of what we cover here, but I think it's important to know Bionic.
1: Great. And it's also important to know that you're no fan of the subject matter or the person who, who which the following material is about. That's, that's whom I was referring Not to. Not speaking of the author. Yeah. Uh, and to uh, get around our, our, I our that mystic. Out. I
2: was mad at the author. Yeah. something.
1: our mystic hidden teaching here. Uh, this week, our guest is the author William Ramsey, uh, who's the author of the book, uh, Prophet of Evil. Alistair Crowley, 911 and the New World Order. And we're going to be talking this week about the legacy of Alistair Crowley and his shadow on the events of 911. Mm. So, we're going to talk a lot about Alistair Crowley, and I know a lot of our listeners are students of prophecy and of current events mm-hmm. and some of these subject matters and may know a whole lot about him, but I think they may pick up a few extra bits and pieces here. Mm. Uh, in our show and some different food for thought about him. What about you? Do you think that Yeah, this
2: you? is, I'm not sure what to make of all this stuff. It, it's very interesting. You know, somebody coming from a historical, what well, used to be called the historical premillennial, premillennial position might find some stuff of particular note prophetically anyway. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. But we'll let our listeners decide. Um, no further ado. Here is William Ramsey, author of Prophet of Evil, Alistair Crowley, now on one of the New World Order, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quick Show. I'm Dr. Future.
2: And I'm Tom. Just kind of a little bit uh, about this whole subject. It's kind of intense, bionic.
1: But we need to cover it. Oh yeah, totally. It's a topic I, we us not walk
2: away from it. I mean, I mm-hmm. think it has value.
1: We've been in that road before. Yep. And joining us on this road, this very challenging journey we're going to take here this week, is uh, the author William Ramsey, who is the author of the book Prophet of Evil. Alistair Crowley, 911, and the New World Order, and we're going to talk this week about the legacy of Alistair Crowley and his shadow on the events of 911. Hmm. So, how can you beat the show? Uh, we're, all we're missing is David Rockefeller. Rockefeller, and Nephilim. We got 911. Uh, one Nephilim would be nice to have in yeah. there too. Otherwise, we've got other essential elements for, uh, got it. for a, a automatically interesting show. I think mm-hmm. our listeners are going to learn a lot from it, and it's just a taste of what they'll find in the book. Mr. Ramsey, I just want to welcome you to your inaugural visit to the Future Quake Show. Great. Thank you very much for having me. And I understand you've you've been a listener of our show before? I
0: have. I do have you in my i uh, iPod podcast, so I uh, definitely have listened to most of your shows.
1: Well, I wish you'd let us well, uh, out occasionally. It's a little crowded <laughs> in there. I, I appreciate that very much, and I appreciate you notifying me and letting me know about this book and uh, being flexible in letting us schedule you. Uh, although, I, it was, a, it was a tough read. I had to take one for the team here because it was a challenging material to read and to digest. But, you know, some of the things in life that you have to do that end up being most rewarding in the long haul sometimes are challenging in the short term. So, it's another one of those situations. Before we begin discussing the contents of your book, could you tell us just a little bit about yourself and your background and even your spiritual history as well?
0: Sure. I... Uh... I'm from uh, California. I grew up in Northern California. Yeah, right. I I have a uh, BA from the University of California, Berkeley in history, so I've always had an interest in history. I uh, grew up in the Catholic Church, although I don't consider myself a Catholic anymore. I'm kind of a general Christian. I uh, uh, definitely have uh, took a Christian approach towards this book, uh, although some of the entries into the book are a little disturbing. I really uh, put them in there for the interest of truth, and uh, uh, that's basically it. I came to Crowley through 9-11, and uh, I think what I found when I was reading Crowley on my own was worthy of putting into uh, a, a book that people could reference. I intentionally mm-hmm. added a lot of uh, footnotes, over 500 footnotes, so people can see that you know the story is at least accurate from what I was using as research.
1: Well, I want to ask you here in just a second more about that. If you could just push your mic away a little bit further there. It's still sure. a little hot on this end here. Not a problem. Um, as, as far as your particular background, are you a, a, an author by profession? Uh, it certainly was a skillfully written book. I wondered if this was your profession or some other field.
0: No, not at all. I, uh, I've written – you know, I had to write a thesis when I was in college. I've done a lot of writing, but by profession right now I'm working in real estate.
1: Okay. Well, it was just a very well-written book that I thought a very sophisticated, uh, experienced writer had written just by reading the, the, the structure of the narrative and things like that. Is this your first publication?
0: It is. It's my first book. I actually had intended it to make it longer. I was going to include uh, uh, quite a, a litany of all the people who were influenced by Crowley, but uh-huh. I decided in the interest of kind of compressing the information and focusing upon Crowley as a biography yeah. Uh, to keep it about 200 pages.
1: Yeah. Well, what I suggest maybe maybe you could beat those left-behind guys and just come up with like a 15-book series. <laughs> there you or go. Or something like that, you know. You well, focus I, was a- every, every- I was afraid to
0: go that long, yeah.
1: Yeah. Actually, I think the left-behind series, it actually takes longer than the tribulation period to read them. Yeah. <laughs> it would actually come and go for that particular time. Hey, uh, y- y- you just began discussing uh, – some overall things about your book, but let me ask you: What made you decide to do a book about, of all people, Alistair Crowley? And what were the elements of of data or themes that you felt were missing in other records about him? You know, as part of your desire.
0: Well, I came to Crowley through 9/11. I had been in, interested once I realized that, or my opinion, 9/11 was an inside job. I was trying to understand it, so I read almost everything I could. And I came across some people talking about occult influences, and I kept seeing these numbers, 11, 77, 93, 175, not as much, 175, but 93 and 77 frequently. And so uh, those were the numbers of the planes that were involved in the event. Right. And uh, that led me back towards into reading the occult. I read a variety of different uh, writers, but it brought me all the way back to Crowley and kind of his, uh, his life and experiences in the late, 19th century, early 20th century, and once I read and I I had uh, followed other people who had written about Crowley, but there was so much other evidence that they either omitted or neglected, and uh, information that they were, didn't put in. So for me, it was uh, there was I thought it was important enough to formulate a book that I thought would be important for people to read.
1: Hmm. Okay, uh, what do you hope to accomplish with your with uh, the readers when they read your book?
0: Well, I think it's uh, the acknowledgement of evil. I think that's a great question. I think that, uh, unfortunately, we live in a a world where people can make good choices, but they can also make evil choices. And I believe uh, in the cosmology of the Gospels and of the Christian cosmology. So I believe that, uh, unfortunately, some people do make the decision or choice to move to the dark side or the devil's side. And uh, Corley was one of those people who really went all the way He thought of himself as somebody he wanted to actually become the chief of staff of the devil. Mm -hmm. And he uh, says that in his – he wrote an 800-page book called The Confessions. It was an autobiography. He finished it when he was 47. But it really listed so many of his ideas. Mm -hmm. He was a very erudite, intelligent person. Mm -hmm. He uh, had the best schooling in what would be called private schools in England. Right. He came from a wealthy family, and he also went to Cambridge with a very – Commonly held figures such as Darwin and
1: well, I uh, want to I well, want to ask you about each of those because I think his okay. early days are something that we can really learn something from, uh, from the Christian community. But I want to I want to carefully go through those um, as we do it. But okay. at the beginning of your book, um, you, um, you you mentioned something that he said on his writing style or, or or his technique, which is useful to know whenever you read any work of Crowley. And in fact, I think you mentioned on page eight of your book that he says he used something called blinds, B-L-I-N-D-S, blinds well, in his writing. What, what does that mean? What, what, what does that imply? I'm
0: glad you picked up on that because it was a way of uh, concealing some of his intentions. He also uh, absorbed terms that would be used in, in the Christian uh, milieu and appropriated them. So sometimes he would talk about him, Lord. He would say his holy uh, guardian angel uh he would misname things he would use euphemisms things that weren't as uh as could be easily understood so when he used him lord he wasn't talking about uh god or jesus right. christ he was talking about the devil his guardian angel was this entity called awas uh he was in contact in my opinion uh based on what i read in his writings with what would be commonly called demons or evil spirits and uh so he if For a first-time reader, at least for me, when I first read it, I was like, well, this doesn't sound as menacing. But once you understood what context he was using it in, then it became very
1: clear. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, well, in fact, from the culture he came from, he came at a u- unique time in the occult movement worldwide. Whereas up to that time, it had been behind closed doors where only the aristocratic people, very few people could find secrets. So all the words they used were couched like that, blind, so to speak. But, but he sort of transitioned thing where a lot of those secrets he made available to the masses. So, you know, the, the blinds kind of thing of like not saying exactly what you mean or using euphemisms would have been the culture of the fellow magicians and mystics that he was around, even though he actually was sort of revolutionizing it and changing it for the masses. So I'm sure he inherited that from the literature he was reading, you know, from them as well. I agree. Um, now – Getting into his life itself, uh, and, and this is something I think is is really good for people who think that they've heard it all about Alistair Crowley. Um, I certainly have not made exhaustive reading in the past of it, but um, you know I'd heard a lot of bits and pieces about the key things that he did, but didn't know the details of his early life, just very little bit. And, and you give more details in your book. How did how did Crowley relate to Christianity as a young person? Now, I don't want to get into his schooling so much because I think that's a whole separate topic we need to focus on. But but, but just his own mentioning, apart from his social context of school, but what, how did he think about Christianity growing up and, and and things like that?
0: I think he viewed it as a stultifying uh, uh, doctrines that, that uh, kept him from what he was free. He grew up in uh, the Exclusive Brethren, which was a subtext of the Plymouth Brethren. He was only allowed to read the Bible, so... I think for him, he interpreted uh, the events of his early life as something oppressive. And he made statements that he wanted to move against that as he was growing up. And he also went to Christian private schools that were very brutal, English schools that uh, had a lot of brutality and punishment. So I think he equated a lot of that brutality with Christianity as a whole and I think he made that decision that mm-hmm. it was this version of Christianity and then he just extrapolated to all Christianity as kind of a as an enemy, you know, and he he said in his uh book he said the forces of good were those which had constantly oppressed me. I saw them daily destroying the happiness of my fellow men. Since therefore it was my business to explore the spiritual world. My first step must be get in personal communication with the devil. So it really pushed him on toward uh, what could be termed the left-hand
1: path. Right, and that and, and, and that was a statement very early in his life. There's a couple more quotes I got from your book here I wanted to share with our listeners. Uh, it, it, he said, indeed, now I think this is probably him looking, looking back on his life, uh, but he says, Indeed, my falling away from grace was not occasioned by any intellectual qualms. I accepted the theology of the Plymouth Brethren. In fact, I could hardly conceive of the existence of people who might doubt it. I simply went over to Satan's side. And to this hour, I cannot tell why. I was not content to believe in a personal devil uh, and to serve him in the ordinary sense of the word. I wanted to get hold of him personally and to become his chief of staff, which is what you alluded to earlier. Wow, that's really sad. I know, it's very sad. Uh, another, Another quote, he says, I was in the death struggle with self. God and Satan fought for my soul those three long hours. God conquered. Now I have only one thought left. Which of the twain was God? So Wow.
2: He, Some
1: he made Satan as God. Well, th- this is a part that I think is very critical uh, that you begin talking about, and that is his schooling experience. Um, did his private boarding school experience... Uh, associate Christianity with physical punishment and pain. Do you, do you think that's what he distilled it down to? I think that that was
0: partially it. I think that um, he had, he endured punishments at boarding school so severe that he had to be removed from the school and put in the care of private tutors. Uh, he endured a six month punishment where uh, he had to walk by himself and uh, basically he exhausted himself. There were also times of, he had to pray, and then he was whipped. So, you know, by today's standards, those people would be put in jail and locked up. So I think that he kind of, I think that there was probably a psychological association between, you know, the Christian institutional Christianity and, uh, you know, a lot of pain and punishment for him. So, yeah, I would i would say, you know, as an armchair psychologist, I would say that that's the
1: case. I think this is a major message from your book, and whether you intended it or not, but it's what I took from it, is that, he had parents who were Bible-believing Christians. Now, there were some inconsistencies there. Uh, his dad was a staunch teetotaler, but at the same time had financial interest in a brewery. So I could see him, you know, seeing maybe some, um, uh, seeing some inconsistency there, you know, in the past. But, but basically, they, they were committed to a, a Christian upbringing. And what I read from your book, he really took it hard when he lost his father. And, of course, like a lot of people do, he sort of blamed God to some extent. Uh, I think
0: that was a definitely a turning point for him, yes.
1: And then, and then, you know, he was turned over to be raised by another relative who was rather rough with him and sent him to the school. But, I mean, the bottom line is what, what, what it seemed like to me he associated was that a, a Christian environment, a Christian society, believes in making you a good, compliant person with the iron rod and they will com- make you completely compliant until they break your will even if it kills you do you think that's generally what the message he got from his experience
0: uh, I would say so I think they, there was an enforced conformity the schools he went to were associated with the Plymouth Brethren and uh, you know they were very fundamentalists and uh, they did not let the children have a free say in what they did so I would say that uh, that was largely the case, yes. Now, you know,
1: yeah, he had some issues that he showed classic troubled symptoms anyway, even at a young age. But um, from his writing, I mean, to me it was very painful for me to read his writings of that period of time, how traumatic it was for him, and how he almost seemed like he extended it. It seemed like that Jesus himself was doing this to him. And that uh, being part of the family of God meant... Extreme pain and agony and and defeat and things like that. And it just made me think about how careful we need to be and how we raise our young people. He, he's not, he, he took that to the most extreme case in his rebellion. But there are other people, whether in rock and roll music or other kind of things, that have had a similar response. I mean, there's untold numbers. Some of our biggest stars in, in music, some of the most profane people, came from Christian environments. I think Marilyn Manson, for example. Hmm. came from a very really strong Christian environment, some of the other big stars and and you know the parents I assume were well meaning, but we need to be really, really careful while discipline is essential to prepare you for the future world to to make sure that we you know like sometimes people will have people read the Bible as punishment and yeah. and I'm not saying that's all bad, you know. I mean, because that is a fruitful thing to do. But you don't want to the equate the Bible
2: as punishment. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. There are many things like that. I've I've noticed that people... There seems to be a real lack. I, I don't want to get too off the topic, but there seems to be a real lack in general about people uh, really thinking through the nature of their actions, especially when it comes to rearing children. Yeah. And Alistair Crowley, of course, is the extreme, extreme case. But,
1: well, and I'm not blaming them. It's just that and I'm not a parent, so... I, you know, I I can't imagine how difficult it would be, but I'd say we need to be really really careful how we associate negative parts of life and things like this, and wrap them in Christian Christianity mm-hmm. and put some false associations together. What do you think about that, uh, William?
0: I definitely agree. I think uh, you know, I think that the the very hard hand that he experienced in you know the late 19th century England was. Something that propelled him forward. So he always looked back on those very serious events, uh, where he almost died. He was beaten and, and, uh, grew, you know, these grueling punishments as something to rebel against. Um, mm-hmm. I think, uh, and that, that influenced his whole life. I think that, you know, you can probably make that choice, uh, that these are specific cases, like this is just something wrong with the Plymouth Brethren, not all of Christianity. But I think Crowley took yeah. it to be, you know, a personal event, you know, personal yeah. event against him. So,
1: well, you know, like I said, some of these other people who have been very rebellious in writing or the arts, or movies, they had similar experiences in what seemed to be good Christian homes, and I, you know, I'm hesitant to blame parents or the environment completely because sometimes no matter what you do, you can have a family that raises a bunch of good kids and have one of them that turns the other direction. Hmm. But I I would say to me it was a lesson, a moral lesson about being very, very careful with young people on how you portray, even subtly portray God to them.
2: Children are always watching their adult counterparts, and that's something I think that Hmm. parents don't take into their mind often enough. Right. That you, you project Christ with your actions, and that's something I think we can... We can all take that as a lesson, but parents especially. Mm-hmm. So.
1: Right. Well, I don't want to be a dead horse on that, but i just leave our listeners to think about that. Because it appears in his writing that never left Aleister Crowley. In his writings later, he had submitted in his mind what God was as someone who wanted to crush you and crush any kind of originality about you or any self-expression. And also Christians were in line with that too and wanted to force conformity and... I wonder what the world would have been like without an Alistair, Alistair Crowley. Would, I think it would have been a much better place. Many more people would have been living mm-hmm. uh, had it not been for him. I've got one more tangential question on this that relates to this in a big picture. You, you get a, a, a picture from the brief narrative in the book about the fact that he was raised in sort of a semi-classic British schooling upbringing as he was older, even in college. But the British school system which is lauded around the world for making very educated people. It's a very, very orderly system, very structured. Um, In fact, even American schools now, many of the boarding schools are are structured on the British system. Uh, There are all sorts of the world leaders of the last couple hundred years that really define the world, either in England or one of their provinces or somewhere, were raised, even like I said, these boarding schools and other parts of the world were raised in the British system of Strict compliance to a norm uh, Very strong class structure Where, you know, upper crust or upper crust Lower, lower, they never will meet uh, And strict punishment uh, For anything that would be considered nonconformist conformist behavior uh, Which I think must have given the, the British public That stiff upper lip viewpoint You know, where they would endure terrible hardships And just soldier on Because they were taught in their schools to do that Mm-hmm. D do, do you think um, the mentalities of, of the leaders of the world had some kind of – even though they didn't respond as strongly as Aleister Crowley, that there was some kind of distortion in their own worldview and ethics coming up in an environment like that?
0: I would say so. I think that uh, there, the schools that Crowley went to and some of the other leaders, even in the United States, the kind of New England prep school system is fairly similar. They are detached – from the working people. It's very class-structured. Uh, they have a sens- uh, special sense of privilege. They don't really have a real... Uh, uh, di- they have a, what I would say is a different understanding of money and wealth. Like mm-hmm. for Crowley, he had no idea how to spend his money. He right. inherited an amount of money uh, by today's standards that was massive, like around $20 million in today's money, one researcher estimated. And he squandered it. He He could have taken that $20 million and... Put it in real estate or something that would have accrued him money, but instead, he just went poor. He just had no idea, and that was growing up in that class system and the expectation that money and things would always be there. Crowley never worked an honest job in his life, mm-hmm. and he, look at the influence he had. He never, right. he didn't. He was completely divorced from a nine-to-five job. And there's other people like that too. I mean, you could see our leaders in the United States. Uh, George Bush senior George Bush jr always prep schools Yale, mm-hmm. uh, never had to worry about money
1: right uh, even Barack Obama we, uh, yeah. things like that. It goes back on both sides yeah, so uh, it's a rare that, exep- right. yeah, it's a rare exception to find one of our leaders that did not come up in that environment uh, and uh, I, I think it, it it somehow must bend or distort their view. and the other thing interesting about him was when he got to college, he went from this extreme control. To where he could get away with a whole lot in college, where he, a lot of them didn't even go to class. It sounded like, they just went and took the t- took the uh, uh, you know extra classes they wanted to take, the electives that they wanted to do, and studied themselves and did so. So you have this inconsistency of like really strong, and then you know anything goes. And I know some people personally that are rather well to do and grew up in environments like that, where they had. You know, cruelty at home. I mean, in deprivation, even in wealth, they had deprivation. But then in other matters where there should be restraint on money or things like that, there was no restraint at all. Hmm. And it was such an inconsistent environment that it created something disjointed in personalities of people.
2: Hmm. Interesting. I, I've seen it as well.
1: We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future.
2: And Tom, parents staring through the blinds, bionic. Stuttering yep. badly, bionic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you're taken aback.
2: Yeah, a little bit.
1: Well, uh, even Pyro's speechless in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about our discussion about the background and upbringing, and what set Aleister Crowley on his course uh, of life?
2: It was interesting. I uh, I have to say, the thing that I found particularly interesting was his use of blinds, and this this whole idea of blinds. You know, I think that can be applied writ large Trying to, to conceal. Yeah, to the to the uh, yeah. you know subject work and subject matter, mm-hmm. uh, as as well as just our general understanding of what people say, you know, like the Washington Monument saying, you know, to the to the great God or whatever, mm-hmm. you know.
1: Yeah, the the occultist will hide things in plain view, I think is the way they usually refer yes. to it, mm-hmm. where they'll put their things out there where they are, and somehow that's just what they like to do, Eyes but you have to be initiating, yeah. initiated to put the pieces together. Mm-hmm. Um, and where we need to know, hopefully, you know, the Holy Spirit is all we need, To be able to understand that. it's a good thing we have got Merv
2: to to explain everything.
1: Well, Merv's here too, yeah. Yeah. Or at least how people can contact us. But we'll do that in just a minute. Um, But uh, to me, I was really moved by the fact that he had this Christian upbringing. Mm -hmm. I think it was tried to be good, tried to be a positive experience. But with this combination of, however he processed it, of severe corporal punishment, which, you know, I, I believe... Kids need a good swat down to mean, That's what I got. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, severe well, punishment. Some
2: need love. Some need discipline. Yeah.
1: Well, and there's sometimes time for both. Like, yeah, sure. Like uh, the preacher says in Ecclesiastes. Mm-hmm. But the uh, the fact that he put together, connotated, almost like a sadistic cruelty with people teaching Christianity never left him. Yeah. And it's something that he, he connotated our God with punishment uh crushing of the will and all of the above Mm -hmm. and uh it's such a shame because as you know who in the sunset is free is free indeed and you can't become your full self until you come under the lordship of christ Mm -hmm. and then you find out what life's all about so somebody else who can uh, talk to you is merv who can tell you how to contact us at future quake
3: future quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at DoctorFuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Doctor Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast.
2: We gotta go. All right, well let's get out of here.
3: Come back
1: for the next section tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future's always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Welcome to the Future Quick Show. I'm Dr. Future.
2: And I'm Tom. Gonna have to look out for 93 Bionic.
1: Yeah, don't give it away, because we're gonna find out more about that later this week. Mm-hmm. Because this week uh, we've been talking to William Ramsey, the author of the new book, Prophet of Evil, Alistair Crowley, 911 and the New World Order. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about the legacy of Alistair Crowley and his shadow on the events of 911. And, uh,. If you don't know Aleister Crowley, uh, those few of you in our audience, he was known as the wickedest man in the world back in the 20th century, mm-hmm. and called himself the Beast, mm-hmm. and he certainly lived up to that title. But uh, we'll let uh, Mr. Ramsey talk about that. So here is William Ramsey, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. How did he regard the welfare of others in his early years? Did, are there any examples, even not even just humans, but animals, other? Does his writings or experience have shedding light on that?
0: Yeah, on the, on the subject of animals, he kind of exhibited one of the prime elements of psychopaths, which is a brutality towards animals. He recalled in his confessions at a time where he killed a cat just to see um, whether it had nine lives. So he kind of talks about that in detail. It's kind of a brutal amount. But he also, yeah, I don't think he had a lot of empathy for people outside of his class. Uh, he, was a, he became an avid mountain climber. That was kind of one of his... Uh, roles but he uh gave some bad advice Uh, he became an expert mountain climber but he gave advice to less experienced uh mountain climbers and uh they unfortunately didn't come back alive and he kind of talked about it in a very jocular uh perverse manner in his uh in his confession so you kind of i kind of for me i perceived this kind of classist lack of empathy for others Mm -hmm. and um ego you know like uh Kind of selfish egotism, too, like not really caring. Mm-hmm. So I would say that uh, he was detached from, he was He was a not, I would, and, and this exhibited, uh, this trait exhibited itself all through his life, which was right. a lack in empathy
1: for others. Completely narcissistic. Uh, yeah. and, and even furthermore, like you said, with, with the uh, pathology, you know, with the cats and things like that, um, taking delight in the pain and suffering of other people. And at his best day, being indifferent to it. and um, But, you know, his upbringing had to have some kind of influence in it. Uh, it's no excuse for what he became to be. But all of these kind of things were traits that came along. You know, and I, I wonder about that, too. I mentioned these world leaders that are raised under similar systems. Mm-hmm. They show callous indifference to things like torture, to things like loss of civilian life in their military escapades and things like that. And we scratch our heads a lot of times and wonder what kind of monsters are these kind of people, uh, you know, that we talk about every week on Future Quake. When their dealings in these schools, you know, are definitely part of it. Mm-hmm. We we talked when we did a show about George Bush, family secrets. We talked about how the the families that they were raised in, the upper East Coast elite, were taught to keep secrets in the family, even internally in the family, they kept secrets. And then when they went to Yale and places like that, they learned how to keep secrets, and that's what they're used to today, and that's why they're so useful in intelligence and in government positions and things like that is because that's a culture that they were raised in. So mm-hmm. people had skeletons in their closet. They weren't going to be the ones to call them out and say, hey, this needs to reach the light of day. That was the environment they were in, and I, I think this legacy came to them too. Um, how, what did Crow, Crowley, excuse me, I'll, I tend to say Crowley, Crowley, what did his actions have on those even who just resided in his house or even nearby where he lived? How 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 far was his reach beyond even just people that were in proximity to him?
0: Well, I think that uh, his actions, you know, because his, his primary dictum of life and what he thought was the central axiom of his work was do what thou wilt shall be. The whole of the law. And let, let, yeah. let me
1: clarify, William. What, I'm, what I mean is even when he wasn't present, okay, I don't mean about their interaction with him. I mean the legacy that he left in an environment, even in the places where he resided. Like, is it, is it Boleskine House? Boleskine, yeah. Yeah. Like, like, what were some of the experiences of people who, w- who went around there even when he wasn't there at the time?
0: Oh, that's a good point. He, uh, he bought a mansion up in Loch Ness, the same place with the Loch Ness Monster it was called Bolaskin House, and that's where he conducted some of his early rituals when he was involved with the golden Dawn. and one was uh based on uh, hidden uh, lost Grimoire, which was called, which was from a Bremelin the major it was a six month uh, ritual working that he partook in where uh, he supposedly summoned spirits and apparently the housekeeper went kind of insane. people would were totally completely afraid of that mansion. And they would avoid it when they would
1: go by walks. So They'd see spirits and things on the outside of it, from what I recollect. Yes, but I think they, that... Moving yeah. around, yeah. Uh-huh. And so, so Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin bought that house after his death.
2: Was that Abby Thelema? Uh huh. Really? Yeah. Oh no, no, that's no Another no, Abby place. Thulema
0: was different. That was okay. that's in Cefalu, uh,
1: Italy. That's
2: You're
0: on right. the island okay, of Sicily. Yeah.
2: I thought he bought Abbey Thalema. No,
1: he bought he bought Boluskin House up in uh, the Scottish direction, up wow. in that area. Yeah, very,
0: very high up in Scotland is Loch Ness, so it's like in the northern part yeah. of Scotland. Mm-hmm. but
1: you know, I from what I read in your book, and I've seen other allusions of this, other places that he lived even temporarily. There were people that would go up and. Just go up the stairs and come back running, screaming, even when he wasn't there. Like they'd go looking for him, and the spirits would come on him, Just being in yeah, proximity to
2: a, if you a ask place for that does. sort of stuff.
0: Well, he yeah. said like when he was living in London, when he was doing his Golden Dawn uh, initiations, he summoned. Uh, he said that round around our big library, tramp devils all the evening, an endless procession, three hundred sixteen of them were counted, described, named, and put down in a book. It was the most awesome and ghastly experience I had known. So these these did happen. His Abbey of Philema, the locals were terrified of it. And when he left, they plastered over all of the uh, obscene paintings that he put on the walls. So, yeah, pretty much wherever he went, uh, people were afraid of him. I mean, there there was a sense of fear. In his diaries, he said, he wrote, like, went and got my head shaved, terrified the the barber again, you know. So, right. He knew he was uh, he was trying to, or he was successfully scaring most of the people around him.
1: Well, I, I want skeptics to understand that, uh, you know, he spoke very grandiose. And so one could raise an eyebrow and say, well, he thought very highly of himself and his accomplishments in the spirit world. Uh, and, and, and he gives an indication in, in various ways that these spirits were always around him and he was always dealing with them. You know, he'd release them at a certain place and... You know, he'd have to try to control them or deal with them when he do these things. But the fact is is that people unconnected to him, even sometimes years later or time later after he'd left a place, would encounter things like this. People were coming in. I think there were some landladies mentioned that were t- terrified and couldn't rent a room uh, because it was next to the place where he had been some time before. And people wouldn't know, but they would encounter spirits and things like this, which to me is the biggest indictment of the fact that this was legitimate spirit contact and communication that you had the testimonies of people totally unconnected to him that saw these spirits just in the locations uh and resided there
0: yeah there's a story of a bullet skin where the housekeeper went on a three-day drinking binge and then tried to assault his wife and children uh there was a, a workman went mad and tried to attack crowley so you know these spirits seemed to uh to be around whenever he was doing his rituals
1: Well, and if our listeners notice that we're not going through a super detailed chronology like you do in your book, uh, you know, chronologically he went to this place and this place and this event, we could never cover that in this show. There's so much material there. But also I want people to get your book uh, and to be able to get it and find the details. I just want them to understand the significance of his life and some of the issues that I found intriguing in the book. Uh, How would he physically punish himself? When his mind strayed from, you know, his real deliberative work that he was doing.
0: Well, that's a good question. He uh, he believed in bloodletting. He also believed in uh, punishments for himself and his followers. And there's a picture of my in my book of one of his followers who cut his arms. So whenever he lost concentration, he would take out a straight razor, razor, and cut his arms. And uh, he instructed his followers to do likewise. One of his followers were, was a uh, fellow Cambridge. A uh, student by the name of Victor Newberg, and there's a picture in my book of uh, cuts all up and down his forearms. So, mm-hmm. oh, ghastly.
1: it's almost like he created his own Opus Dei or something, you know, you know where they have the little thing around their wrist, you know, or around their ankle, I guess, that created the pain and things like that. Right, um, familiar. But isn't it ironic that he left what he thought would be an oppressive and harmful God to take on a God yeah, who felt like he needed to harm? Yeah. You know, to be able to serve faithfully. Basically, it's the same thing the prophets of Baal did. If you you read the time of Elijah, they did, they cut themselves the same way. Well, that's interesting
0: you brought that up because that's one of the reasons why I named it the book Prophet of Evil was uh, the prophet of Baal and Ashtaroth sequence in the book of Elijah. I found him to be a similar type of uh, personage to them, like he was in that vein. Uh, Mm -hmm. I saw him uh, as like an Old Testament Baal worshiper.
1: Mm-hmm, Or Balaam, uh, and it equally ineffective to, to the prophets of Baal too. In the, in the big scheme of things, you uh, know what's sad too is that we know that this whole cutting thing is now come back in vogue with young people. Mm-hmm. We're yes. cut, cutting as a natural response, and we now know who's the author of that. It's the 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 one who wants to hurt us all is the one who works through our psyche to cause this. You have some thoughts on that? I'm just fascinated.
2: Tom. Well, so many things. I mean, you know, frequent listeners may know that I do work with with kids on occasion. Um, just so much about this conversation, uh, I find, uh, I mean, the, obviously tragic and stuff, but the whole idea that here he comes from this uh, essentially a school for the, you know, the leaders, the kings of the earth, if you will, kings of the earth and the great merchants of the earth, and uh, decides to leave and ends up becoming... You know, a prophet of Balaam, or you know, mm-hmm. follower of Moloch, mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. by choice. By choice. By yeah. choice. You you might even say that his rebellion was was tedious. It was so so complete. You know.
1: Yeah, yeah. Believe that word comes to mind numerous times when you read about his exploits. Yeah, uh, it's shocking at first, and that's like anything that, that that Satan does. He will want to shock you with his evil at first, mm-hmm. but after a while, it it just gets into tedium. Uh, and it becomes you know pitiful basically mm-hmm. at some time. Um, what supernatural entities did he report that appeared before him or you know or were evoked by Crowley and his different workings
0: uh, that's a good question. He uh, was always trying to make contact ceremonial magic, one of the primary interests is tried to invoke entities uh, the entities that he named the primary one was by the name of awas. He also contacted others named alamantra Abul who was known as the wizard uh there was one by the name of lamb that he drew in his encyclopedic repository of his occult writings called the equinox which is a 10 volume laboriously uh written and uh crafted encyclopedia of occult works and uh lamb actually looks kind of like what a ufo uh these ufo people know about yeah I don't, I'm not a UFO person, so I I just know that people have made that connection. And Mm -hmm. one of his followers, just on the subject of Lamb, one of his followers who uh, kind of carried the torch for uh, Crowley was by the name of uh, Grant. And he wrote that that Mm -hmm. was one of the, that that Lamb was one of the versions how uh, the demon AWAS would appear. So he said that that was one of his representations. So Lamb and AWAS are both. According hmm. to Grant, Kenneth Grant, the same person, hmm. which is an interesting aside. I didn't have that in my book, but
1: uh, but there were even other uh, other entities as well. I mean, other workings that he did as well, too. elamantra working and a few other things, correct? That also had other appearances.
0: Yeah. So he, he. I think that he was always having other um, appearances through his life. He was, he was always praying to Awas or something else. But a lot of times, these. <clears throat> there was one instance. Uh, there was another called Koronzon which was uh, a working he did in the Sahara, was the southern part of Algeria, with his disciple at the time, Victor Newborg, where Coronzon is the demon of the abyss, and he recounts that in detail. I think the book is The Vision of the Voice, and uh, it's a fairly harrowing uh, recitation. He copied the uh, calls that were done by Sir John D. and Edward Kelly, who were uh, ceremonial magici- magicians affiliated with, Queen Elizabeth, hmm. and uh, he mm-hmm. had their books, and he had, they they followed the uh, the ritual to a tea out in the desert. It took very long. They did it day after day. I think it took 30 days, and uh, the pretty much the the scariest moment was the summoning of this demon, according to them.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and the, pretty scary. Well, the, yeah. the using John Dee uh, and Kelly's process was something called Enochian magic, and uh, the Enochian language, which was a they said was a language of angels. If it was angels it was fallen angels. Yeah. But it was a three dimensional language if I've heard described, where we, we see a language written in two D on a page. You had to look at a three dimensional representation to be able to understand this. That they purported, and I think it's a lie, but they purported it came from Enoch himself. But but one other irony in you mentioning John D. Doctor D considered himself a Christian. But he had such a thirst for knowledge, and, and being a scientist myself, by my background, I could sort of relate to that. You, you get a thirst for knowledge wanting to know more, and it's tempting to go in forbidden areas. And he wanted so much that he was willing to go to the angels, even though the Bible forbid it, uh, to go extra information. And he got information about the new world, it appears, information about um, – he, he really developed a scientific method. All sorts of things about botany and other kind of things were given to him. But then these angels started saying things like you should not you should not pray to Jesus, you should not worship him and I guess it scared to death his scryer, who was actually looking in a crystal ball. But Crowley was the one who picked this up, is it not? And actually repopularized it. Uh, uh picked up what? This this Enochian uh Oh, I language. would say so,
0: yeah. I think it was part of the it's part of the current, the magical current. So I think he picked it up and apparently other people have done the Anakian magic uh, rituals as well. But, uh, you know, he, I think, you know, he's such a, a luminary, uh, dark luminary in the cult tradition that, uh, you know, he has the repository and the writing for people to kind of carry forward his work. And there's quite a few people mm-hmm. who have done it. So. But, you
1: know, it's funny. He, 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 he made available to the public, at least according to him, Many of these workings and many things that some of the secret societies said he should have never released. But but during his time of practice, his single-minded goal, it was very clear, was to be the most powerful sorcerer or magician in the world. And there were others at the uh, Order of the Golden Dawn and others who he made it a point, like Mathers and others, who were well-known magicians in their own rights, that he would actually like, supersede all of them, right? He he, w- it- he would have more... He would get more citations with more secret groups. I mean, he just he marched through Freemasonry like Sherman to Atlanta. I mean, he, <laughs> he he was 33rd degree and then on quickly because he was doing so many things. But these secret society people didn't like him, and so he had to go to Mexico to get his 33rd degree ranking where they didn't know him because he made right. enemies so well. And, and any of these people he worked with eventually became an enemy along the way. Mm. Uh, yeah, he was—he uh,
0: notoriously kind of alienated himself from any major group he was involved in. He always wanted to be the boss, and he—he uh, uh, he lived by the idea that you should join every occult group you sh- you you can. So he was part of the O.T.O., the Golden Dawn, the Masons. He went to the higher level Mason order, Masonic orders of Memphis and Misraim. That's the 90 and 95th degrees. He said uh, in his in his autobiography, he said, I possess more exalted titles than I have ever been able to count. Right. I'm supposed to know more secret signs, tokens, passwords, grand words, grips, and so on than I could actually learn in a dozen y- lives. An elephant would break down under the insignia I am titled, entitled to wear. And I have a picture of him in, in the book. He's where... such a
1: wonderful, guy, humble guy, would <laughs> not <isn't> he? <laughs> this is true. Yeah. But
0: there's a picture of him in his book where he looks like a four-star general. He's covered with so many, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's insignia and tokens, etc. So,
1: and when he had conquered all that, like uh, Alexander the Great, he then devised his own systems, and uh, and went from there. You, you know, one thing that struck me about him, because when you read the narrative of his life as you cover, his life touched so many famous figures from the first half of the 20th century. I mean, I mean, he had interactions with people in the Theosophical Society, people can, you know, the key founders of of uh, Theosophy, uh, Hemingway, you know, and had contact with him, all sorts of famous people, that he almost is like the very antithesis of Forrest Gump.
0: Yeah, it's kind of strange. I was surprised at how many people he touched as well. Uh, Somerset Maugham, Mencken, Aldous Huxley, uh, you know, it's uh, it's quite a list. Hemingway.
1: And, and I mean that on a, on a multiple level, not only the fact that he, he had these brushes with all these famous figures, but the fact that if you watch a show like Forrest Gump, he he emphasizes everything Crowley was not, self-sacrifice, humility, looking out of the well-being of other people, um, looking at their goals and objectives rather than your own, and that was sort of the hallmark of the personality of Forrest Gump in the movie, and you see somebody here who is the absolute opposite of every one of those things. Hmm. Yeah, and he
0: had had the negative. Most everybody he met was uh either horrified or disgusted by him he did not have a very good uh you know reputation
1: at all and and largely regretted having met him uh yeah. one, one of the curiosities in here and and uh this is probably a minor thing but i just find it sometimes the occult origins of some of these things in our culture what what connections exist between crowley to the german blitzkrieg concept That's of all things well,
0: that's a good question. He and you know he was always looking for followers, but he didn't look for followers from the masses. He was an aristocrat, and he looked for people who were accomplished uh, either from the top schools in England and uh, either you know uh, Cambridge or Oxford. But he also found another one who was a uh, general by the name of J. F. C. Fuller, or he's a captain. And J. F. C. Fuller was a uh, tactician. He uh, had developed well be- after he met Crowley. He developed a um, system where of like massed armor attacks that the Germans adopted. But, well, but he now he was Crowley.
1: British. He was British. That's right. correct. Cool. He was
0: British. And he knew Crowley, Crowley right after the turn of the century. Crowley had asked for writing samples for uh, a prize, and GFC Fuller responded. They both shared a, a a loathing of Christianity, and that's what kind of brought them together. They uh, eventually, eventually parted ways over a lawsuit. And I think 1912 or 1913, but J.F.C. Fuller uh, was definitely a follower of Crowley, uh, and uh, he was one of only two people invited to Hitler's birthday party, Hitler's 50th birthday party. So you can take a direct connection between Crowley mm-hmm. through J.F.C. Fuller to Adolf Hitler. And there's not even just more of a personal connection, but their philosophies were the same. I mean, Crowley in his writings were suffused with neo-Darwinian notions, he also uh believed in uh, uh, he believed in the triumph of the strong over the weak, uh much like Hitler did. He was a warlike person he had a warlike mentality, although he never really went to war uh so you see these kind of same things uh Crowley believed in a feudal state, Crowley said despite all its drawbacks, there was never a better social system than the feudal mm-hmm. so far it is derived from the patriarchal and. I think the Nazi regime was, was, regime was somewhat of a feudal mm-hmm. kind of uh, environment. Anyway, uh, can, so. I share,
1: can I share a little quote uh, of this? And, and by the way, it wasn't just this gentleman. Uh, he had other people with, with uh, government connections. Uh, uh, Theodore, is it, is it rose Roes, yeah. R-Rose. R-Rose. yeah. Uh, it was a member of the German Secret Service uh, who was also an occultist and the supreme outer head of the a uh, quasi-Masonic uh, order called the Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO, very famous occult group. Uh, and, and, and a, it was funny. You mentioned him as a prophet because many of the things that he said later had something to come true. Uh, and he said before this time, he said, The world head of the OTO is a German, and it is up to the OTO to rebuild the civilizations of Europe as only can be done the German way. And Fascinating. certainly we know that a few years after that, that was underway uh, th- through Nazism. But uh, just a few more details on this gentleman. Um, in 1907, Crowley announced an essay com- uh, competition in the hope of stimulating an interest of his writings. Captain John Charles Frederick Fuller of the 1st Oxfordshire Light Infantry provided a written entry entitled Star in the West. It says, he was entirely at one with me. This is Crowley speaking of him. On the point of my attitude to Christianity, we regard it as historically false, morally infamous, politically contemptible, uh, and socially pestilential. Uh, Fuller would become one of the outstanding military strategists of the 20th century, whose ideas would be rejected by the British but adopted by the German high command in the form of blitzkrieg. Fuller would become one of only two Englishmen, as you mentioned, invited to Hitler's 50th birthday. Um, he, here, here's a quote from it. He says, uh, "This is from the writing he did for Crowley. He says, At the pen of Crowley, like that of Saladin, Swinburne, and Shelley, is but another splash of cold water to wake the frowsy sweepers of the of the night, and wash from their gluey eyes the nightmare of Christian supremacy. It was only by casting off God and breaking away from the essentially bestial quality of unreason that man paradoxically assumed godhood.'" Eliphaz Levi, who came up with Dota uh, Mendes, w- uh, in one of his unpublished letters wrote, The riddle of the Sphinx has two answers, which are true only in a third. The, God, the first is God, the second is man, and the third man-god. This is but the overman of the egotistical philosophy of Nietzsche. Hermes struck a higher chord when he said, To create God is to accomplish our own creation, to make ourselves independent Impassible and immortal. Above us flames the zodiac, the sound of the balance lies between Virgo and Scorpio. The eagle is the emblem of good, the scorpion of evil, the eagle winged serpent of good and evil, and it is the doctrine of good and evil that we shall now deal. As there was darkness before Cilia formed the light, and as knowledge is the outcome of ignorance, so is also virtue the outcome of vice. It was Satan, the Lucifer of Milton, the Devil of Blake, and the Serpent of Genesis who was the author of wisdom. So, this is a British chap who venerated him, who had a huge impact on world history just because of his collateral brush with Crowley, right? I mean, that, that gave the power to Hitler to basically conquer Europe and, and in a very short matter of months, basically stand reign over all of Europe. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future.
2: And Tom. I don't know no numbers, especially the ones that are significant. Like,
1: well, you will here before the week's over. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of information cr- crammed into this session. Um, he shows his traits to be totally uncaring about the needs of others, mm-hmm. just totally consumed in his mission to become this great magician, even punishing himself. Mm-hmm. Um which this cutting thing isn't it funny how it goes all the way back to you know, Baal, and other ones would do this self mutilation yeah,
2: when he was talking about that, uh you know I kind of had the idea of you know the prophets of Baal yeah. cutting themselves and right, you know whip themselves up a frenzy and right you know that stuff still goes on in a lot of different mm-hmm. cults and, and, mm-hmm. and near cults,
1: well, even some groups that call themselves Christians, yeah, do stuff sure. like well, that,
2: well even in the Philippines, they you know right. people crucify themselves
1: opus day and these other groups that do it, yeah. Uh, any other last thoughts on the segment?
2: Uh, interesting, the mountain climber thing I thought was interesting because often you find mm-hmm. mountain climbers are people who are obsessed with their willpower to do things.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know? A single-minded focus. Yes. Somebody else single-minded is Merv who can tell you how to contact us at FutureQuake.
3: FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. during the radio broadcast, we gotta go.
2: All right, let's get out of here.
1: Come back for the next segment tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future's always bright. Have a good day.
3: All right. Join us
1: next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future.
2: And Tom. Uh, it's sort of sad, some of this stuff, Bionic.
1: It is very sad because uh, the subject matter is about a life wasted. And uh, the the subject is a gentleman named Alistair Crowley, who was known as the most evil man in the world. Uh, and he relished that title as well as the beast. And uh, we have with us this week the author William Ramsey, who is the host of the book, Prophet of Evil, Alistair Crowley 911 of the New World Order. So we're going to have some interesting connections at the end of this, but we have a major section to get through today of our interview, and uh, we hope everybody enjoys it. Our theme is the legacy of Aleister Crowley and his shadow on the events of 911. So uh, let's proceed with our uh, interview with Mr. Ramsey, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake.
0: Yeah, and they both Hitler and Crowley held this held the same ideas. They were very interested in the triumph of the will. Hitler had his movie Triumph of the Will by Lenny yeah. Riefenstahl, and the, the the number one or the most important word in uh, Crowley's system is thelema, the Greek word for will. And thelema in the uh, Gematria, which is a form of Kabbalah, equates to 93. So you see this kind of similarity between the will uh, of Hitler and Crowley. And Crowley had tremendous willpower, and so did Hitler. They say that was one of his distinguishing characteristics was to triumph over all you know when he was fighting was have the willpower to to overcome whatever he was faced with, you know. Mm-hmm. So you see that with Crowley. So they 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 were very they were they were very similar
1: personalities. Speaking of the military, uh, a, a big uh, controversy amongst many with Crowley was this idea of whether he was a secret agent during the wars, particularly the first war. Do you think, based upon the data that you reviewed, that he was a true agent for either the British or the Germans?
0: I think that when he was in the United States during World War 1 he was an agent for the the British. So the information is not there's not a wealth of information the Britisher uh will not allow anybody to look at their records and other people have looked at it. Uh but there is something from the the United States files that uh, indicated that Crowley was an agent of the government and when you look at the historical uh, record the 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 British were always involved in the World War I and World War II or try, in trying to get the United States into the war on their side. That was actually one of their primary mm-hmm. aims in the conflicts and uh, also to kind of scultify the German influence in the United States. So Hitler was just a – and he, he wrote just this lousiest, most ridiculous uh, propaganda for the Germans uh, for one of their magazines called The International. So when you look at it all – and when it was done, he said, my, when, when the United States entered the war, interestingly, he came to the United States on the Lusitania, which, mm-hmm. uh, upon its sinking, was uh, the turning point upon which the United States entered the war on the side of uh, the Allies. And he wrote, once the Lusitania, Lusitania went down, he said, my two and a half years of work is done. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, leads you to believe he also had and if he was really a he was he was in the United States under the guise of being a German patriot but if he really was he would never have been bet, let back into England over and over the England right. English executed any traitors mm-hmm. uh, during that time anybody who was pro-German so he was able to come and go in England most of his life he also had other contacts in England uh, with other intelligence figures uh, and uh, he had that most of his life he, and he was kicked out of France, the argument the French had wasn't of his awful character, but because they thought that he was associated with German intelligence, Mm -hmm. and so he was kicked out. So I think that he had intelligence ties. I think that he was sending money back, uh, sending information back to England, but he could have been a double and triple agent. I just, the evidence for that wasn't something that I I was able to. uh,
1: Well, I would say that would certainly be immoral activity and i wouldn't think he'd want to engage in any immoral activity no, he was a
2: questionable virtue sterling well yeah. you see
0: you see the nexus between people who are uh, luciferians and the intelligence agents and the intelligence agents use uh commonly use people like crowley because they don't have the moral scruples the rest of uh you know the general population has so mhm
2: it's interesting to see that yeah. No kidding. Well,
1: you know, he was even more explicit. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just, he said in his writings that you covered in your book that he said he just really wanted the Germans. He was rooting for the Germans to shoot some uh, American ships and sink them to the bottom so they would go, you know, get into the war. And, uh unfortunately, that wasn't just thought of Alistair Crowley. That was of the, the British leadership in public in World War One and Two, both. Hmm. And... uh you know, I think what what allies, what great allies we have to hope that, you know, we would have some kind of tragedy, and uh, believe me, that certainly wasn't played during the Pearl Harbor incident, from from what I understand. Same same kind of thing at play there. Right. Uh, getting on toward the toward the latter part of your book, and uh, you you give this teaser in the title of your book. Why do you ascribe an importance to the numbers 11, eleven, ninety three, seventy seven, and one seventy five? both in Crowley's magic system and also to the September 11th, 2001 tragedy?
0: That's a good question. So Crowley uh, believed the number 11 was of, of primary important f- importance for him. He explained in one of his books, Magic and Theory and Practice, which is something that he finished later in life, that 11 is the number of magic in itself, is suitable for all forms of op- operation. It's a sacred number par excellence of the new aeon, which was his word for the age, uh, the new age that he was trying to create. And uh, it was uh, mentioned in his primary book, the Book of the Law, that he received as a scribe from the entity Awash which says 11 is all of their number who are of us. So uh, for him, it was a uh, it was a crucial number, and he spelled the word magic with a K. K is the 11th number of the alphabet. And uh, to differentiate what he did, his kind of, uh, you know, more ceremonial magic from uh, the to differentiate it from cat in the hat magic. So 11 for him was very important. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the laws, 11 le- uh, words, 11 syllables. And uh, these were all the numbers of the plane. So 11 was one of his primary numbers. 93 was the, were the numbers for uh, the lima and will uh, in the Greek, and those were the numbers in the gematria. So those are also prevalent through all of his writings. You'll see 93 in one of his books the Book of Lies. Book of Lies was 93 chapters, so he constantly used the the word number 93 over and over. 77 are the 77 names of the devil, uh, as put in by uh, LaVey's Satanic Bible. It also has some deeper meanings. It's part of the septenary. It's 11 times 7 equals 77, and according to Crowley, it relates to the word Oz. So 77 and Oz are kind of interchangeable in meaning, according to him. He says... Uh, Seventy-seven is written in Hebrew, ayin, zayin, Oz, and the he-goat, he symbol of matter, Capricorn is the devil of the tarot, which is the picture of the goat of the Sabbath upon the altar. So he sees this as uh, kind of a uh, symbol of the devil, as 77. So these numbers were important to Crowley, and they're also evident through the events of 9-11. That's how kind of I got back to Crowley. Was and,
1: and 175, I, I think, also, too, is included in that, right?
0: Yeah, that's correct. 175 is lesser known, but it's one of his rituals. When he started the AA or formulated it, he had had already received what he called his holy books, which were uh, he claimed were received as a scribe. He he, writ, he had mm-hmm. written them down. He also had a voluminous amount of other writings. What he did is codified them into a system for magicians, and each one of his books was ascribed a number. So he had and he called them Libra, the the uh, latin word for book so it's book one through whatever each number had a kabbalic meaning so 11 73 books mm. all like that but one of the primary ones was libra 175 and libra 175 is a ritual whereby one uh, uh adheres oneself to any deity by adoration it's a fairly lengthy process but uh, you know it's uh it's a ceremonial invocation that uh, crowley's followers use so Mm-hmm. Uh, all these numbers had meaning, and um, now
1: you're not going to tell me that each of those four numbers have some meaning to the 9 event, are you?
0: I'm going to say that those numbers are put into the 9 event intentionally as a sim- symbol. I will make that argument. Okay. So I'm going to say that those numbers of the planes, each four of those planes, are not there at random. And what They're were the four,
1: what were the numbers of the four planes that crashed on the day of 9
0: elevens
1: ninety three seventy seven and one seventy five okay and what and what what uh e- even the even the floors that they hit you yeah, i mean related it's, those, right
0: it's very strange like the whole thing the 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 twin towers are a large eleven it had a hundred and ten floors, so it was like eleven uh like there's elevens there and i think the first plane hit around the 93rd floor and the second plane hit at the 77th so there's there's all kinds of ritual markers that suffuse the the entire day
2: i would normally i would say that normally i would say that this might be too much even for tom bionic but uh this is actually the second time this has come up in extended conversation so it's like uh yeah tom
1: tom horn of raiders yeah. news network also now he 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 didn't do it as far as connecting to crowley i don't believe Mm-mm. he just picked up on the consistency of the numbers
2: yeah he even I guess he even either either paid for or found a significant amount of signal research that somebody had done using statistics and data analysis before and after the event It had yeah. found significant uh, stuff regarding eleven seventy seven and I think ninety three as well Now
1: now when I saw him talk on that Tom Horn. Uh, he had a whole lot of words surrounding the 911 event that, like, the number of the letters equaled 11. Mm-hmm. The the number. Of, and just sitting there listening to him talk, I wrote down some additional ones that he didn't include in his talk. He had this long list of all the key proper nouns about the event in 11. And I immediately wrote down Shanksville, which I believe was mm-hmm. the town. 11, Mike Bennett. Eleven letters. It's
2: eleven letters, isn't
1: it? Oh my goodness. We're uh, in
2: trouble. Well, you,
1: well
0: here's the thing is you have to once you see the, the use of eleven frequently by other people who are in the cult, you see you will see that it's a very important number to them. Right. But the date of the event was September eleventh. So you see these correlations between uh, the use of the number and in other occult things the, the eleven pops up as well. Harry Potter JK Rowling changed her name to the letter K. She changed it to the eleventh letter, letter of the alphabet, a common uh insignia, and she knows a lot about the occult. That that uh-huh. There's all kinds of references to Flood and Are You Serious, uh-huh. which are both big
1: time occult uh topics.
2: But and if you look even at Harry it,
0: Potter's yeah.
1: eleven letters, so <laughs> that's something else I have in common with Tom Harry Bionic. Potter. Uh
2: no, that's uh,
1: you better look out. Uh but the uh uh <laughs> the occult dictionaries also say 11 is the supreme number of evil, correct? If you look that correct. up. Uh, you know, I, uh, I'm sorry.
0: Well, it's all right. I was going to say, one of the founders of the Golden Dawn uh, wrote that the number 11 was the always associated with uh, perdition, destruction, and, uh, you know, so it was something that Crowley picked up on from his, his all everything that he had studied in the Golden Dawn. So 11, mm-hmm. you know, preceded Crowley as a a number of evil but crowley seemed to really absorb it into his soul
1: his whole religion you know a couple other words that i had jotted on a napkin when i heard tom horn speak not only shanksville's 11 world trade center towers is 11 times 2 for two towers 22 letters the pentagon 11 letters Mm. what's what's the odds you know of these kind of things and there's more there's more there and uh You'd be very curious to see if there was some working done at some time that would preclude a future event.
2: I don't know how you could quantify that statistically exactly. Uh, Well,
1: let's do this. I mean, as an armchair
0: statistician, you just take 175 numbers and you say, like, okay, these are the most important numbers in Crowley's uh, religion, which they are. 11, 77, 93, and 175 are probably the top six, and you, you just do a statistical... Uh, breakdown of how what's the likelihood of all six of those popping up out of 175 random events? It's infinitesimal. It's mm-hmm. it's it's out of the It's out of boundaries. So while people can laugh and and giggle at the at the at the you know these word these numbers actually being there, the fact of the matter is they refer all the way back to Crowley. And if you read the entire book, you'll see it's suffused there, you know, throughout the entire book.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, that's that's just the uh, the protocols in which which they normally like to use uh, for this kind of activity. Um, How how did Crowley think society should be structured? He he, he not only stuck with magic, he had his own thoughts and what he learned about the universe, um, about what he thought how society should be structured, and even thoughts on eugenics and even dealing with people in the monotheistic religions. What were some of his thoughts about the greater politics of society?
0: Well, like I stated earlier, he believed in the feudal system, so he didn't have any problem with an aristocracy ruling over, uh you know, a large horde of people. He said uh the solution is to pick out the diamonds from the clay, cut them, polish them, and set them as they deserve, attempt no idiotic experience with the muck of the mind. You will observe that I'm advocating an aristor- aristocratic revolution, and so I am. So he believed in an aristocratic revolution. He thought that most other people should be treated kind of like cows, he says here. We should have no compunction in utilizing the natural qualities of the bulk of mankind. We do not insist on trying to train sheep to hunt foxes or lecture on history. We look after their physical well-being and enjoy their wool and mutton. In this way, we shall have a contented class of slaves who accept the conditions of existence as they really are and enjoy life with the quiet wisdom of the cattle. So uh, he did not have a real positive uh, view towards other members of his society. And he, One of the dictums that he repeated frequently was, the slave shall serve, and that's an important line from Book 77, which uh, he called the Rights of Man. The Book 77 was one of his uh, most more important distillations of his ideas, and in it he basically said that you know man has the right to, to uh, do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, and anybody who gets in his way, uh, man has the right to kill them. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, Book 77. So there's another play back into one of his primary numbers. Uh,
1: You know, ironically, this is one of these areas where he actually was somewhat successful because that exactly is the way that the world is evolving right now, is this globalist, aristocratic, autocratic rule by a set of elites. And Aldous Huxley, who you mentioned his uh, uh, cohort, uh, that was clearly his direction. Uh, The Fabian socialists uh, were in this direction, H.G. Wells, uh, the other leaders of the British elite, in uh, Americans as well, too, uh, have had this, and so that's one way in which he's actually succeeded. And if you think about it, the one incident in recent memory that furthered their aims was actually the incident of 9 one because after that we had the War on Terror, we had the Patriot Act, we had all these activities of surveillance of people and centralized control of people and their activities. Where all they have to do is just raise the warning level to red, and they can immediately control the day-to-day activities of everyone. Uh, we now have uh, army battalions that are present on American soil to deal with American unrest that have been announced at Fort Stewart. All of these things were made way because of 911 as an excuse.
2: And America, by and large, kind of yawns, which, which uh, is, you know, part and parcel of of just. You know, what he was talking about with the sheep sort of enjoying their overall, the, enjoying right. the rule. You right.
1: Know. Well, now we can tell them they feel safe, too. Mm-hmm. As long as they do what they say, well, we'll we'll make you feel safe and comfortable and you just trust us and, and uh, report when we tell you to report and take this shot when they tell you to take it and, you know, put, put the plastic on the window. Um, but that is the elite. You know, the elite mm-hmm. now work for Department of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, and that includes contractors too. let uh, just say, don't don't raise questions, or you'll be anti-American. You'll be a terrorist. In fact, if you look at the DHS report, Department Homeland Security, for January of '09, it talks about guys like you and me, and maybe even William too, as being yeah. on the uh, the religious extremist list. Yeah,
2: I think they actually called us potential terrorists. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah.
1: So his vision is coming true. Uh, you know he'd like to sort of take credit for it but the bible already said it was going to come true. You yep. read Revelation 18. You already see this system is already set up in place. So uh he he didn't usurp the mind of God. He just accidentally is doing his bidding, which is the same kind of measure we see in Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar and people like that. Uh you can you can resist all you want, but you're not going to change God's plan uh for for this universe. You have any other thoughts on that William?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that he was. That's one of the reasons why the book is called Prophet of Edo. It's prophetic in the future world. He uh, he said that he wanted to bathe the world in Krillianity within a hundred years. Uh, so he, I think, has had an influence, and you can see his influence, and it suffuses, you know, so much of our culture, uh, music, art, uh, some of these phony gurus or false prophets like Leary and Hubbard, were. Uh, dedicated curly followers, and a lot of people don't re- recognize or realize that, but they've, you know, uh, tried to put this do what thou wilt mentality. The Beatles, in the last interview of John Lennon, at a Playboy interview, he said the Beatles were all about doing what you want, which is a paraphrase of, you know, do what thou wilt. So uh, you, I think okay. that his influence, and that's that's kind of the gist of the book, is that he his influence is still there. The problem is it's sub-Rosa. These people don't come out and proclaim it; they keep it to themselves because the sensibility is kind of an aristocratic, elite sensibility. They don't want to popularize it. They don't want everybody to join in. They wanna they wanna live off the cattle, you know.
1: But I think they feel like there's so much in power now, and the people have been so dumbed down by the by the fluoride and by the other things that they've given them that they can be more blatant. And you'll hear a David Rockefeller say these things, saying, you know, yes, I am, you know, an internationalist instead of American. I'm proud of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got, you know, World Federalist Society and Walter Cronkite mm-hmm. saying that he's more than happy to sit at the right hand of Satan. Walter Cronkite, you know, introduced by, yeah, the, uh,
2: the quote unquote most trusted man in America. Yeah,
1: by, by Hillary Clinton, you Talking know, being about
2: sitting down at the right hand of Satan. So I think know?
1: they're bold now in just thinking that we're such a lost cause that they can really play their hand right now. Uh, you go say something.
2: I'm just, I'm, I'm interested. Uh, perhaps you have some perspective on this, uh, you know this whole idea where it seems uh, as as I believe maybe you called it Doctor Future Crowleyanity here has now been he did, spread yeah. yeah spread out. Um, uh, did he ever talk about sort of uh, you know what a you know the hierarchy the uh, what's what's the name Alice Bailey called it the expanding the hierarchy or what right externalization externalization of the hierarchy did Alistair did Alice uh, did Alistair Crowley ever write about yeah. that or talk about that yeah. at all?
0: Uh, not to my knowledge. He was familiar with Annie Besant, but uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know uh, any Whip. Alice Bailey if that that was there. But he was yeah. he was very well informed. He was very aware of what was happening yeah. in the world and in the occult groups. So he would visit occult groups all around the world. He was familiar with what was happening with the ancient mysterious order of the Rosy Cross in San Jose. He tried to vid- uh, visit visit uh, splinter groups of the Theosophists in Sa- in uh, San Diego. So. He was constantly traveling and trying to get in contact with a lot of these people, and a lot of these people wisely kept away.
1: Hmm. Well, if what you were implying was like some kind of uh, theology or structure to what mm-hmm. he believed, uh, kind of, he, yeah. he believed we were entering the age of Horus, and that Horus was rising, the slave god, Osiris god Jesus. His era was ending, the age of Pisces, and the age of Aquarius, or the rising of Horus, the god of will, was coming. Hmm. And so he would be the one who would help facilitate... The uh, the strong, the strong of society that would actually, uh, you know, get rid of. In fact, he talked about this quite a bit about getting rid of any idea of uh, gentleness, of understanding for those who were less fortunate, that that was an illness of society that would be quickly gone away.
0: Right. Yeah. He was against humanitarianism. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. He said an end to the humanitarian mawkishness, which is destroying the human race. By the deliberate artificial protection of the unfit, you know. So he he was really against uh, the weak. Uh, mm-hmm. He thought that they should be killed off. He said that should we not should we not breed uh, should we not breed Are we going to repeat this insanity? Should we not rather breed humanity for quality by killing off any tainted stock as we do with other cattle, and exterminating the vermin which infected, especially Jews and Protestant Christians. Mm-hmm. He seemed to think that the Roman Catholics were pagan enough for his taste but uh yeah that's interesting you know, yeah. yeah
1: he didn't have a problem with catholics according to your book because he just considered them fellow pagans but but what did he plan for protestants and jews what was his end game for them
0: Oh, well, i think it was just to kill them off i don't think that he was uh he had any sense of mercy or anything like that so you know this is a time for he said it's a time for war let's overthrow the slave gods um you know, freedom must rely, his idea of freedom must rely upon the sword. So, well, you know, he was essentially violent, and he said, Nature's way is to weed out the weak. This is the most worst merciful way, too. Of uh, the present, all the stronger being damaged, and their progress hindered by the dead weight of the weak limbs and missing limbs, diseased limbs and atrophied limbs, the Christians to the lions. Yeah our, that humanita- was like, yeah, our humanitarianism is the syphilis of the mind, he said.
1: Yeah, and that was one of his favorite phrases, to the Christians to the lions. And, uh, um, it's funny, he rubbed shoulders so long with people you would consider part of the New Age movement. And we've documented on the show comments from Barbara Marks Hubbard and her, her people that she channeled and others, how they don't plan a gentle light worker or destiny for Christians. Uh, they, they plan to eliminate us as part of their process itself, which is definitely not what they try to play up in their publicity. He just didn't have good PR, Aleister Crowley. He just sort of told it the way he thought. Uh, rather than being I, I available, I think so.
0: But a, a lot of his writings were concealed. You know, he, he he was not a he. Although he published, a lot of his books were meant for his followers. Uh, I don't know. He was popularizer in some stuff, but he tried to popularize some of his writings. But largely, he uh, proselytized through connections, and and uh, so some people may not have realized or seen most of his writings. And he wrote so many, like for example, his pornographic works were mostly written under uh, pseudonyms so uh, with the advent of the internet and the ability to kind of research all of his books in one spot you kind of get a broader picture of what he was writing and thinking and then you kind of have, it kind of begs the question you have to take that next step is were his thoughts and ideas actually an influencer was he just some kind of crazed writer like a Nietzsche who just mm-hmm. you know sat at home and wrote all day and, and my argument is that he was he was an active influence upon a lot of people
1: we're back at the Quake show with Dr. Future.
2: And Tom, no fan of the numbers eleven seventy seven ninety three or 175.
1: Bionic. Now you can say that again.
2: Yeah, there you go. Uh,
1: you know, something I forgot to mention in here about his prophetic capability. Uh, he would have, one of his books when he had it published, he would go in front of Cleopatra's Needle there in London and read it every day. And he pronounced there, he said, um, Every time I've published a book, there's been a war a year later. He said this out in the public. Mm-hmm. And the other two books he had. He said, <clears throat> Now I'm doing this again and remember this. He came back and did it the second year. Mm-hmm. That was in the summer of 1938 and wow. the summer of 1939, there world war. Mm-hmm. So it's really weird. Yeah. Um, talked about the 911 connection. You think there might be anything to that?
2: Well, it's the second time this has kind of come up. The numbers and stuff. It's the first time that it's yeah. come back to Crowley. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I, it's so far out that it just might be totally true
1: yeah i don't know yeah. um you know a good friend of ours um who, who follows a lot of our exploits told me at the beginning that he thought there was an occult force behind nine one one that that was actually controlling it and mm-hmm. this would support that particular theory certainly Uh, certainly that either crowley witnessed it or that he did some kind of working that may have resulted in that yeah. later who knows yeah. um what we've studied is certainly not beyond any of that yeah. um and in fact, his talk about the new world and about uh, uh, limited elites and the masses who he had mm-hmm. great contempt for, the blind, suffering.
2: Yeah, it's like. Wow. What a perfect way to, yeah. to, to look at so much of yeah. what goes on in society, the architecture, what's written on the monuments yeah. around Washington, D.C. and Nashville. Well,
1: he said the sheep were, were good for, mu- for uh, wool Woolen and sometimes mutton. Yeah. Merv, uh, would you come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake?
3: Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information.
1: Okay, we gotta go. Alright, let's get out. Come back tomorrow for a big finish tomorrow. Until then we hope your future's always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future.
2: And Tom, going to pray against 117793 93, and 175
1: bionic. So they're definitely not your lucky numbers anymore.
2: Well, whoever's using them is going to be unlucky because right. I'm going to be praying against them.
1: Well, if you caught our show yesterday, you'll know what uh, Brother Tom is talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is uh, talking about this connection that our guest this week uh, connected these very sacred, important numbers out Al- from Aleister Crowley who, who was known as the wickedest man in the world uh, throughout the 20th century and even now, uh, called himself the Beast. And these numbers that he thought had occult significance has a direct connection to 911 mm-hmm. which is very fascinating. But we've really focused on Aleister Crowley and his whole background and what it tells about uh, our culture, what it tells about our upbringing, us as Christians, mm-hmm. uh, and about our future destiny. And uh, he is a man who certainly has his handprint on the future, I think, would you agree? Mm-hmm. Uh his legacy's been long with within well, uh popular music and you know, also yeah, I culture. was gonna say
2: you see everybody sort of uh I believe I believe Mr Ramsey, our our guest today, used the na- used the phrase Crowleyanity. maybe yeah. it was you, one of you guys. Crowley yeah Crowley-anity. And that seems to have kinda went out there, especially when you, like I said, mm-hmm. consider the use of what he called blind. Right. You
1: know. Well, in the in the 60s, they see him as a figure of counterculture, mm-hmm. where he went against the establishment, Christian establishment, mm-hmm. and that's why he was a role model for them. That's why you'll see him on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band and mm-hmm. the connection to Led Zeppelin, and mm-hmm. Stones loved him and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Well, let's go to our last segment with uh, William Ramsey, the author of the book Prophet of Evil, Alistair Crowley, 911 and the New World Order. And then we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Well, l- let me ask you something in total about your book. Um, I read it cover to cover. Took me a long time because I'm a slow reader. Uh, but it's a good read and well well written. I was really impressed. I thought you'd maybe written a large number of books just because it was very skillfully assembled. Um, well, thank you. But one of the things that was very very difficult, and and I'm someone who in my studies particularly of occult topics, for the kind of thing we cover here at Future Quake. I think I've seen and read just about it all, um, but when you read the poems, the actual writings that he puts that that you included in your book, they are incredibly vile. They're pornographic, they're profane, uh, they're as offensive as anybody would ever read. And uh, I know our listeners, if they get your book, are going to wonder, why in the world did he put this stuff in this book along with the historical narrative? Can you comment on on what you thought was your your idea of including some of this totally putrid uh, writing that he put in there? That was his actual writing, and what what your purpose was in the bigger scheme?
0: I I totally agree with you that it was perverse and an evil, and uh, I do think that uh, you know it wasn't an easy decision for me to come to that to to put the this writing in there. But I think it was uh, to see what kind of wicked perverse figure he was. And to know that these type of people exist—that uh, you know, this wasn't just uh, some kind of—you know—people who follow him have that same view. And his perversions—I mean, there were even greater books that I didn't chose not to put in. The the entirety of the world's tragedy is so vile, and I mentioned in my book I could not—I can barely—I can't even talk about it on the radio or put it mm-hmm. in. But even the stuff I put in is—I uh, fully agree with you that it's inappropriate. It's not for uh, children, but I think that it gives an insight to his wicked blasphemies and uh, his evil nature that he indulged in these type of practices that he uh, you know, he was uh, he was a wicked and perverse person. So I try to put those in for that reason. I think that if it wasn't in there, uh, I don't know if they would get get uh, the reader would attain the to a knowledge of the full loathsomeness of his
1: character. Mm-hmm. That's well said. Uh because yeah, you will definitely get it from reading his writing, um, and um, it's it's incredibly repulsive, uh, and I don't think he cared that it was, but or, or he delighted that it was repulsive itself. Yeah. But but well, what's
0: I- scary is that there's worse stuff in there. There's worse stuff that I omitted. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the yeah. first the two of his porno- pornographic books uh, that I, I poured through are. Uh, mm-hmm. Horrific. And he, the, the worst thing is that a lot of oftentimes he would juxtapose holy uh, material with his more vile and base writings just to kind of ex, uh, intensify the blasphemy. So mm-hmm. uh, he was really just a, a real monster, just mm-hmm. a real, real monster.
1: And, and I want to caution our, our listeners. I, I, I recommend this book. If you're a student out there and you're trying to understand as a Christian the, the, the impact of the occult on our culture – and the history of it and how it affects our, our 20th century, 21st century. Um, it is a very good resource to be able to understand that and the impact on society. Uh, but if those of you who are, are a little squeamish or, you know, only if you are a very, very mature Christian and really prayed up, should you go through some of that material. If not, I would suggest you get to the poems, skip over them and continue the historical information. But I just wanted to warn our listeners ahead of time, but I still think... With that caveat, that it is a very good book to get that can be instructive for you. And, and I tell you one thing, it really it drew me closer to the Lord. Um, and, and the other thing I have to admit too is that uh, we live in a perverse world now. I mean, uh, we live in a world of child molesters, of people who we catch, you know, in cannibalism and other kind of horrible things that we don't want to think about. But that is the world that we're thrust into. And if you talk to anyone who's in the on a local police force, Having to deal with some of these satanic cults or things like this, even some people in Deliverance Ministry, they will be the first to admit that this is the reality of the world that we're now that we're now in right now. So, uh, we'd we'd like to think everything was something different, but we we have to have a a, a grim realistic attitude that this is the world that we're dealing with. And, and one little tidbit for you, and I, I don't know if you know this or not, Mr. Ramsey, but uh, one big fan of uh, Aleister Crowley was Alfred Kinsey of the Kinsey Institute. I wondered if you were going to go there. Who who really was a huge fan of his work and um, actually corresponded. And and if you look at Chris Pinto's uh, documentary, The Kinsey Syndrome, you'll see a lot of this. Uh, He actually used a a, a Nazi uh, uh, um, officer who actually um, did terrible things to these children, Jewish children, and he used that data that ultimately our government paid for, paid Dr. Kinsey to collect. And you will see there's a picture in the documentary that's amazing where where Alfred Kinsey, this this great venerated guy of American science and education, actually goes to that Abbey Thelema over in Sicily and actually goes there because he venerates him and he stares at a picture there of Alistair Crowley And alongside him is Kenneth Anger.
2: That is such a scary picture. It's one of the – yeah, it's
1: just such a – Kenneth Anger who who did uh, probably the most famous uh, avant-garde film, uh, Lucifer Rising, back in like 1968.
2: The Rolling Stones in it or something? Well, he had –
1: they used them in a satanic uh, purpose and actually even used Marjorie Cameron who was this uh, elemental that – was created. She called herself the Scarlet Woman and then the uh the wormwood star who actually worked along with Jack Parsons in the Babylon working. And uh, L. Ron Hubbard. And L. Ron Hubbard. So so they all have a connection here. But but you see these two gentlemen, Kinsey and, and and uh Kenneth Anger staring at a picture and you really see that the baton has been passed of yes. evil from one generation to the next. And, and, and Kinsey Ken- was a monster.
0: And uh, Anger is still alive. He actually had a showing of all Crowleyanity at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles last year. And if you look on YouTube, you can see his 45-minute uh, speech. And his benefactor was the Getty family. The Getty family, he actually oh. admits that, How yeah, he admits wow. that the, one of the Gettys uh, gave him a free pass to fly around the world whenever he wanted to. So you see this kind of yeah. elite uh, perversion and connection to a notorious uh, Satanist. Our wealthy,
1: our wealthy benefactors looking out for society, by right. uh, taking care of, of Kenneth Anger, uh, and you know, and speaking, he, he really lived up to his last name because uh, he, he exhibited the same personality as uh, Crowley—extremely bitter, mad at other people, disenfranchised from all the people he worked with. So it's a common theme, I think, that we find. And, and in summary of this, it. it it, it sure seems like to me that Crowley's life, as evidenced by your book, reflected the values of the master that he served. Uh, he, he was alienated from all his friends and supporters. He callously ignored the hurt and the deaths of those who were around him with no empathy for him, some that were caused basically directly by his hand. Uh, and he caused the insanity or destruction of numerous wives he had or those that were closest to him that actually went to mental institutions. Um he was filled with pride and inflated self-importance, yet he seemed to be totally dissatisfied and wanting in his life. And and it becomes very clear in his writings that he was infatuated with the anger and resentment of rebellion uh, as part of some kind of uh, apparent lifelong futile war with God that he couldn't win, even when it resulted in his own personal destruction. And uh, as you read his uh, literary output there, it's very it's very banal and very pitiful. And, and trivial when you think about it. I agree. I agree. Does, does his life illustrate that our insistence on resisting the light yoke of Christ and the joy, peace, and hope it gives will, will only result not in freedom but in bondage to sin instead and the mental, physical, and spiritual destruction it causes rather than this illusory sense of freedom and fulfillment? Is that is that what we learn from him?
0: i think so i think that you can see somebody who was a slave to sin he could not i think he was his conscience was so seared and his heart so black that he couldn't even go back to any of the normal uh, behaviors of a you know normal person he could only take pleasure in wickedness and evil and perversion and uh you know i think that the, the devil put you know it's not a yoke he puts around the neck of his followers it's a slip knot and uh once you're once you're in bondage to the devil, you know it's just a brutal road of destruction, and uh, we should be thankful
1: that uh, of the saving power of Jesus Christ. Amen, brother. Well, you know it, it's just like that great uh, theologian Mick Jagger said. You know he said he can't get no satisfaction, and that really is the legacy of Aleister Crowley. He couldn't be satisfied in whatever he pursued, and and he had to get bigger and bigger fixes of his perversity just like uh, the heroin that he took. I guess he took enough that could kill ten men there at the last part of his life. Mm. And um, he just had a bigger fix. And whether it's that or pornography or or, uh, occult activities or whatever it is, you keep looking for more and more and more extremes, and it just doesn't satisfy. uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Is there any other legacy that you think Crowley left after his death? You mentioned the Beatles, which actually... Venerated him by putting him on their their uh, album cover. I guess Sgt. Pepper's has him yeah. on there. Um, you see another no, number of bands. Uh, Led Zeppelin, you know, like I mentioned, one of their key figures, bought his house. Um, well, and
2: I believe going back to the Beatles, I think Sgt. Pepper was released 20 years to the day that Crowley died, wasn't it?
1: Which is how the song is yeah, well, 20,
2: 20 years ago today. Sgt. Pepper topped the band to play. Right.
0: Yeah, I heard that argument that. Sergeant Pepper is Crowley. Right, yeah. right. So I've heard that. I, I wasn't able to confirm that, but, you yeah.
1: Well, and well, so many different people in our music scene. Um, even uh, there, there's a guy, Graham Bond, who was really formed the foundational of the blues sound in Britain. And a lot of his guys, like Ginger Baker, went on to Cream, and a couple mm-hmm. other guys, Jack Bruce, went on to bigger things. But he later got so disillusioned. He got into magic and considered himself the son of Aleister Crowley. And eventually took out. his own life, like everyone else who was associated with him.
0: Yeah, I've heard of Bob Bond. Yeah, it was tragic.
1: Yeah. Um, it, who do you think, hey, we're getting to the end of the show here, um, who do you think might take up the mantle of being the wickedest man in the world uh, as the foremost enemy of Christianity today? And what do you think they might attempt in the future?
0: That's a good question. I think uh, eventually the Antichrist will, will uh, take on the same... Kind of behaviors. Well, and that's, cheating. that's cheating. That's <laughs> cheating. You know, we
1: were looking for proper names. Yeah. That's, oh, yeah. that's like when you're in, like, vacation Bible school and you just say the name Jesus whenever they answer them because that will probably okay. be the right <laughs> one. So,
0: Well, that was an easy one. You, you handed me an easy question. Harder, I would say, you know, as individuals that are out there today, um, you know, I just see a lot of our politi- political leaders who um, – you know, are engaging in what I believe is Crowley. If you look at George W. Bush's seniors, uh his he got a commissioned uh aircraft carrier. Guess what the number of the aircraft carrier was?
2: No. Nope. close seventy seven. Yeah.
0: It was uh formally commissioned in two thousand six and it's got a seventy seven right there. So hmm. you can see uh individuals uh who
1: who are willing to tag themselves with those numbers? So would you figure they're probably worshiping around the the owl at Bohemian Grove right now? Well, yeah, California. absolutely.
0: I mean, look at all those people. You mentioned Cronkite. Cronkite was a lifelong member of the Bohemian Grove. Is that, mm-hmm. isn't that correct?
1: Uh, more than that, he you actually was the voice, the voice, of, the the voice owl. of the owl. Right. So here here's
0: yeah. you go back to Crowley. Here is do what thou wilt in the Sir Francis Dashwood. Uh, Hellfire mm-hmm. Club that Benjamin Franklin spent time with and wrote a prayer book with Sir Francis Dashwood, which was a total degradation of the Bible, is my understanding. I haven't read it. But wow. anyway, wait a second.
1: Our so founding fathers were all Christians. That's what oh, I've that's heard on right. Christian
0: that's TV fine. and radio. Go read Franklin's epitaph. Don't that's, pop you know, my bubble. Christian about that, buddy. Anyway, uh, his epitaph was a full, like, occultist where it's all you're, you're hoping right. for some type of reincarnation. Uh, anyway, so you can follow that. In, in Fran- Sir Francis Dashwood's Hellfire Club, the entrance was uh, had the statue mm-hmm. of Harpocrates, who is the Egyptian god of silence. Right. The Egyptian god of silence makes a gesture, which is the right finger above your lips, kind of like you were saying shh to right. somebody. Anyway, so you can take that to Crowley.
1: Who, and it said, uh, do what thou wilt. That was what also was above the correct. Hellfire so Club it had, but, yeah. That's correct.
0: And then Crowley had uh, the do what thou wilt dictum. He also made the sign of Harpocrates. Frequently, I have a picture of him making it in the book. Uh, it's like the wisdom and silence. And then you can go right to the the Bohemian Grove, which I will argue is a modern hellfire club. They have a statue of St. John of Nepomuk, who was a Bohemian priest, hmm. who uh, is making the gesture of silence, the sign of Harpocrates, the sign of silence. He was executed because he wouldn't reveal uh, the Catholic confessions to the queen of Bohemia. So you see that tie-in, and there's a a straight continuum between uh, the Hellfire Clubs of the late 18th century Mm -hmm. through Crowley and up to the modern Hellfire Club of today, which is the Bohemian Glorow Grove, that all of our leaders uh, attend rigorously for 14 days a year.
1: Sounds like that would be a good next book for you, William.
0: Well, uh, my next book, I actually had it as part of my original book, but it's The Children of the Beast. I was going to cover Manson, Parsons, Grant, Hubbard, Leary. I've got uh, a lot on uh, Robert Anton Wilson, Kinsey. Uh, I've got uh, Jimmy Page, Bowie, Ozzy Osbourne, J.K. Rowling. You know, uh, I want to oh, get your of. I a got complete. even better. I, I got Oliver complete. Stone, Stanley Kubrick, Nicolas Cage. All these oh. guys have connections. Oliver Stone's book. If you read, see some of Oliver Stone's films and look for 93, 77, and 11, you'll be surprised.
1: Huh?
2: I yeah, thought he was did. converted just recently, although although to Roman Catholicism. But I I, I
0: don't know I don't know. So uh, was Tony Blair. Well, what is oh, well, well, Tony that's...
2: Blair is a different story. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Yeah, he's <laughs> already been
1: through his rebirth ceremony
2: yeah, and his the, wife. Yeah, and the, the yeah. hair clippings. He
1: watch, watch them. the first five
0: minutes of Natural Born Killers and look for seventy-seven. Look well, at uh, go see the World Trade Center and look look at what the insignia is on the firemen's hats, what the number is.
2: Seventy-seven. Ninety-three. Oh. Yeah, that's right. Oh, my gosh.
1: Well, uh, I tell you what I want to do is I want to get a complete set of William Ramsey books and donate them to my children's wing at my church, okay? So (laughs) if they like Harry Potter, are they suitable for ages five through nine? No way.
0: This is not a a book for anybody under 18, unfortunately. Yeah. But – it's well, the, the problem with the book is we live in a dark age, a new form right. of dark ages, mm-hmm. and to acknowledge and see these things happening yeah. in a conscious sense, most people can intuit that they're happening, mm-hmm. but to see it consciously in front is just an extra added benefit to, I think, a Christian person's awareness. Well, so it's broadening your understanding. I know it's horrible. Right. I didn't like writing the book. Right. I didn't want to put this book out. I don't want to, you know... Uh, have the burden of this it's not pleasant i can tell you i've had uh, every psychosomatic problem my stomach hurts i don't like it my eyes go bad so Mm -hmm. this isn't something i'm happy about it's but i think that it's there's a certain form of satisfaction in the conscious knowledge that this exists and people are this evil hitler was as evil as Crowley. do you see what hitler did he was capable of astonishing levels of Mm -hmm. madness and murder and he didn't he didn't just hate people think oh he hated Jews. No, he hated everybody. He All killed right. Jews, Russians, mm-hmm. gypsies, he killed his own people. He had
1: planned for at Christians. the very
0: end yeah, at the very end there, uh it was the Nero option where they scraped everything down, there was the they flooded the the uh underground system there. So he he just was intent on destruction. Mm-hmm. And that's
1: very dangerous. If you see these people, these are dangerous people. Crowley mm-hmm. is dangerous. You know, it's, you you mentioned the physical ailments and everything that you went through in this. I know every week, weekend in and in week out those same kind of ailments are experienced by our listeners here at Future Quake when they have to listen to us. <laughs> yeah. It's a common thing they go through every week. Yep. General general they discomfort get, and malaise.
2: Yeah, our, our radio listeners get hand fatigue from flipping the dial so quickly. Yeah,
1: to turn it off.
2: Yeah. Come on, you guys have a great show. You guys do a ter- <laughs> you guys
1: you. do a terrific job. Hey, I want to get my last two cents in before we say goodbye and tell people how to get your book. Uh, You know, we mentioned about who's on the future. I I would suggest to our listeners and to you to keep an eye on this gentleman, Alan Moore, the uh, legendary writer. Uh, He was the one who single-handedly raised, of all things, the comic book medium to this uh, legendary literary masterpiece that they now consider, uh, The Watchman, uh, which has been made into a movie. Uh, They consider it some transcendent literature. He did V for Vendetta, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, he is a practicing magician along with his predecessor, Steve Moore. Uh, they're writing a grimoire right now, and they're doing just about everything I, I see Aleister Crowley do. And, uh, uh, in fact, even uh, Alan Moore has said in the past, he says uh, to some degree Satanism is purely a kind of disease of Christianity. Um, so I don't think we've heard the last of him, and I think the eccentric English Englishman sorcerer, Is something that's going to continue to rear its ugly head on the rest of humanity here. And uh, I want to thank you so much for being with us. So much more I'd like to talk with you about. Uh, There's tons more in the book. All we did was just try to do enough to pique interest. For our our listeners who'd like to get a hold of your book, how can they get a hold of it and keep up with your other research? Uh,
0: The uh, website is www.occult911.com. You can buy the book in PDF, or I can send you a softbound cover, copy. And also, you can. It's available on Kindle. I'm trying to get it on iBooks, but it's a laborious process. So it takes about four weeks. So hopefully, I'll have it for the iPad if people have that. Okay.
1: But uh, Kindle is fairly easy. Does it work out best for you if they get it right from your website?
0: Uh, either way is, is fine. The, the website's easy. I can send it to you in PDF format, or uh, you know, that's just the same day, or you know, it takes a little longer to okay. put together a, a book to send out.
1: Support this brother, ladies and gentlemen, in his work. And uh, I want to thank you, Mr. Ramsey, for coming with us. Uh, Have you had a chance to be on many other shows like ours so far?
0: Well, I was just on Visigoth's show on Sunday. I was on uh, Charlie Giuliani on Oracle. I was on Rob Chowda on Oracle, and I did another one, local L.A. talk radio here in uh, L.A. for a guy named Extract who's kind of interested in
1: similar subjects. Okay. Well, that sounds great. I know this is something Dr. Stan Monteith, I'm sure, would be interested in. As well too, and he needs to hear from you in Pit Radio too, and we'd like to keep up with your work. But again, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Godspeed, and we wish God's protection for you too in your work. And we look forward to having you back again for your next information to share with us. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be on. Your-